today we're launching this new series, The Apostles' Creed, uh, Ancient Future Faith. And uh, so thank you for being here for this very first message in the series. Each of our existing life groups uh, will be discussing and going deeper into the messages in this series each week. Uh, we've actually started some new small groups specifically for this series, and I want to urge you to get connected into one of those groups if you are not at present. Uh, you can sign up at the clipboard at the back. We'll be in touch with you to make sure you're included. Those groups are starting this week, uh, so it's really important that uh, you sign up today. There's a, a round table at the back that's got a clipboard on it, and you can sign up there. Well, the last time we were together, uh, we were celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as we begin this morning, uh, we're taking a brief look at events in the weeks immediately following the resurrection and the ascension. In the opening of the first chapter of the book he wrote, uh, which we call the Acts of the Apostles, or we usually just refer to it as Acts for short, uh, which is a history of the birth and expansion of the church in the first century, Luke tells us that following his resurrection, Jesus remained on earth for 40 days before ascending into heaven. Uh, over the course of those 40 days, Luke says that Jesus was primarily doing two things. He was giving evidence to his disciples that he was indeed alive again, and he was speaking to the disciples about the kingdom of God. And there was something else, something very important. He ordered them not to leave the city of Jerusalem just yet, but instead to wait in the city for the fulfillment of the promise that he had made to them on the day, um, or that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That fulfillment came on the day of the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And the word Pentecost actually just literally means 50th. It's a, it's a number. And so it's named because it's, it's always celebrated on the 50th day following Passover. The feast of Pentecost or Shavuot, uh, celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit on that day inaugurated the mission of the church and equipped the disciples with the power to carry it out. And it's informative to understand that uh, what the church did next, having received the, the promised baptism with the Spirit of God, what were their first priorities? Well, on the day of Pentecost itself, the first manifestation of the Spirit's power was seen in a very powerful, very articulate, very convicting sermon given by the Apostle Peter in the streets of Jerusalem that resulted in 3,000 Jews trusting in Jesus as their Messiah in one day and being added to the church. That's a, a great church growth moment right there. The very next manifestation of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated by the things that the fledgling church gave themselves to. We read in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, 
attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, there's a lot there, but notice with me first, please, that the very first thing to which they devoted themselves was the apostles' teaching. And it's of great interest to me that having had an experience as spectacular and as important as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of Jesus' promise with all of the supernatural phenomena that took place surrounding that, it seems that they didn't obsess on the supernatural manifestations themselves or the particulars of each one's individual experience. Instead, those who had been there on that day in the city who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit were instead preoccupied with an urgent sense of a need to know from the Word of God what it all meant, what it meant for them personally, what it meant for them generally. So as a first priority, God's Word tells us they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Everything else that happens in the description we just read together flows out of that first point of devotion. See, the Spirit of God will always lead the people of God to devote themselves to the Word of God. For that reason, we can conclude that a person who claims to be filled with the Spirit of God, but who nevertheless neglects the Word of God, who is functionally ignorant of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith and who sees no reason why concerns about correct doctrine, sound doctrine, should make should matter, is making a false claim. In Matthew 28, it's recorded that just before ascending into heaven, Jesus had given them this command, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So important to the apostles was this obligation, this supreme responsibility and authority to teach the Word of God and the commandments of Christ to the new followers of Christ within this young but rapidly expanding church, that when we read in Acts chapter 6 that administrative problems began to arise that threatened the unity of the church, we then also read that the apostles, recognizing the peril of neglecting the essential priorities of prayer and the ministry of the word, appointed others to handle the pressing administrative tasks. Why was the teaching ministry of the apostles of, of such supreme importance? Simply this that getting doctrine right is the key to get everything else getting everything else right sound doctrine is essential to coming to know and understand the will and ways of god it's essential to the sanctification and the increasing spiritual maturity of god's people we can't claim to be followers of the christ of the bible while remaining ignorant of the truths of the Bible concerning him. And make no mistake, the entire Bible 
from Genesis to Revelation is about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. No surprise then that throughout the Acts of the Apostles, we see demonstrated over and over again the primacy, the the essential priority of the ministry of preaching and teaching the Word of God. The teaching of the apostles has come down to us, of course, in the form of the New Testament scriptures. We have a responsibility in our time to accurately communicate the faith of the apostles to our generation and then to hand it faithfully to generations yet to come. We are under obligation, as Jude put it, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I would submit to you that even now in the 21st century, devotion to the apostles' teaching will continue to manifest itself in a spirit-led passion to come to know the Word of God and to submit to its authority. Now, that's a very short route to arrival at the threshold of a reasonable introduction to the Apostles' Creed, but it's the longest one that I have time for. And it seems to me that we need to ask two questions right at this juncture, here in this first message, this first look at the Apostles' Creed, because it is my intent to introduce the Apostles' Creed to you this morning. Those two questions are, what is the Apostles' Creed? And secondly, what is its relationship to the apostolic scriptures? So let's begin with the first one. What is the Apostles' Creed anyway? And the first thing to know about the Apostles' Creed is that, surprise, it wasn't written by the apostles. Church historians tell us that it first emerged in Rome in the early 3rd century in about the year 215 A.D., Uh, Its earliest use was as a public confession of personal faith that would have been recited by new believers at their baptisms. And over the 500 years that followed, the precise language of the Apostles' Creed was morphed multiple times up until the 8th century. And so the form in which we now have it dates back to the 8th century. It's an ancient document. The creed is a reflection of the effort of the early church to express in summary form the faith as it was taught by the apostles. They called the creed the rule of faith, and it has persisted for 19 centuries because of its value in expressing in simple, straightforward language most of the major doctrines of essential biblical Christianity. Today we might Think of the Apostles' Creed as the elevator speech of the Christian faith, as as concise a listing of essential biblical truth as you will find. It's probably important that we actually hear the words of the Apostles' Creed at this point, so will you stand with me and let's recite it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit 
the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Now again, a few simple observations seem to be in order. You may have noticed that there are three major sections to the creed. Each one is introduced by the two words, I believe. In Latin, the language of Rome in which this was originally written and recited, the word is credo, which explains where our word creed comes from. A creed is a statement of beliefs. The Apostles' Creed, secondly, is Trinitarian in its scope. Uh, That is, its framework recognizes the three-in-one nature of the Godhead as the Bible reveals him. The first section begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty. The second declares, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And the third asserts, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The major focus is on the person and work of the second person of the triune Godhead, Jesus Christ, which occupies a full ten of the eighteen lines The Apostles' Creed reflects this full sweep of history from the pre-existence of God in eternity past to the creation, to the incarnation, the virgin birth of Christ, his suffering, crucifixion, death and burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the birth and life of the church, the fellowship of God's holy ones uh, across time and every other human divide, the opportunity for our sins to be forgiven, to be resurrected from the dead, and to enter into the life of eternity yet to come. The word Catholic, for those of you who may have winced as you read the words Holy Catholic Church, is not a reference to the Roman Big C Catholic Church. It is um, Instead, it's spelled with a lowercase c, and it simply means Universal, that's what that word Catholic means. It means universal. It's a reference to the oneness, to the fellowship of all of those all around the world who have believed in Christ, who have died and gone on to eternity, all who believe in Christ now in the present, all who are yet to believe until the day that Jesus comes again, the church of the ages. 19th century church historian Philip Schaff said this regarding the Apostles' Creed. As the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers, the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, the Law of Laws, so the Apostles' Creed is the Creed of Creeds. It contains all the fundamental articles of the Christian faith necessary to salvation in the form of fact, in simple scriptural language, And in the most natural order, the order of revelation from God in the creation down to the resurrection and life everlasting. Now, Before we move on, let me give you just three bullet points about what the Apostles' Creed is not, what it is not. First of all, the Apostles' Creed is not an incantation. It's not magic. Merely reciting it won't automatically make you a Christian. Secondly, the Apostles' Creed is not Scripture, so it has no authority in and of itself, but it points beyond itself, doesn't it, to God's self-disclosure in creation, uh, His work of redemption and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, 
it points us to the authority of his word. Like the moon reflects the brilliance of the sun, so the creed reflects the content and the authority of the Bible, which alone is God's word. Third, the, the Apostles' Creed is not, in fact, exhaustive. It doesn't dot every I and cross every doctrinal T. In reality, the Creed leaves out some essential doctrines like the authority of Scripture, the depravity of man, the deity of Christ, and justification by faith. And one might argue that those doctrines are implied, but it is inarguably true that they are not in the Creed clearly articulated. And that's probably why William Cunningham, who was one of the founders of the Free Church of Scotland in the 1800s, wrote regarding the Creed, if men appeal to the Creed as the proof of their orthodoxy, they are, of course, bound to explain its meaning, which is what we intend to do in this series. Albert Moeller wrote more recently that all Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. So in other words, the, the Apostles' Creed provides kind of a, a doctrinal baseline for all who claim to be biblical Christians. It's kind of a minimalist declaration or, or statement of Christian belief. So why should we study the Apostles' Creed? Uh, and you may know that there are some Christians, and in fact entire denominations, that object entirely to any use of any of the major creeds that the church has produced in its 2,000-year history. For example, some, church, some churches proudly declare and feature on their literature and their websites, we have no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And there's truth in that, but there's also rich irony in that statement for a couple of reasons. First, those words aren't found in the Bible. And second, they've turned that motto into a kind of creed of their own. Because a creed, by the simplest of definitions, is simply a statement of beliefs. And that's important because we all need, as we learn what this faith is all about, we all need a summary of what the Bible teaches. We all need a strong standard for recognizing true biblical Christianity and and for rejecting false doctrine when we hear it. But any time an individual or a local church or a denomination or a parachurch ministry or a televangelist sets out in some formal manner a list of their doctrinal beliefs, and they all do, they all do, they are writing a creed. They are saying... This is what we believe the Bible teaches about X, Y, and Z. This is the stuff that really matters. These are our doctrinal distinctives. These are our theological boundaries. This is where we take our stand. You know, I frequently get questions about various churches and ministries, whether this preacher or that teacher or that television personality uh, should be trusted. And if I'm unfamiliar with them, my first step is often simply to go online, find their website, read their doctrinal statement, their statement of beliefs, their creed. And usually, 
I can figure things out from there. In fact, if you'll go to our website, click on About Us, and then click Beliefs, you'll find a listing of what we believe and teach on a number of essential topics in brief, simple terms. You will find on our website a simple creed. But let me dispel any anxiety you may have about where we're going here by clarifying that I have no intention over the coming weeks and months of leading you in a direct study of the Apostles' Creed itself. This isn't going to be some kind of historical, crusty, dusty study of history. My intention is rather to utilize the Apostles' Creed as an outline to lead you to know and better understand the major doctrines that it includes as they're revealed in the pages of Scripture. Well, why have we chosen to do this series at this time here at LifePoint? <laughs> well, we actually intended to do this series much earlier, but COVID kind of got in the way. As we have shared in recent weeks, research studies indicate that a majority of Christians today are biblically and theologically illiterate. Uh, they don't know their Bibles. They don't know what they're supposed to believe. Therefore, they're completely unable to articulate what they believe, or why, in most cases, it even matters. Contemporary Christianity has been characterized as pragmatic, spectator-based, entertainment-addicted, instant results-driven. And I've heard more stories than I dare to recount or care to recount of churches and entire denominations giving in to the relativizing influences of our times, surrendering the fundamental truths of the faith consequently losing their identity as the distinct people of God. So it's very simple for me. Uh, I don't want any of that to accurately characterize any of you or much less our church in general. I want each of you, whether you're a brand new Christian or you've been on this journey for a long time, to possess as, as full a knowledge of the truth of God's word as we can deliver and as you are willing to receive. Creeds accomplish at least two things in that endeavor. They provide a tool, a curriculum for spiritual formation or discipleship, if you will, and they assist in correcting doctrinal error. So a study of the major doctrines of the Christian faith, utilizing the Apostles' Creed as the outline, could not be more relevant to our times. Well, one last question. What does it mean to believe? When we say, I believe, what, what are we saying? What, are, what do we mean? More importantly, for our purposes, we might ask the question another way. How does the Bible define what it means to believe? That's, that's the really important question. And when we ask that question, we, we quickly discover that the New Testament writers in particular saw belief as something much more than mere intellectual acknowledgement of truths about God. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this, You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. In other words, you can be a monotheist, you can believe things that are true about God and still be a functional pagan. Even more, uh, you can be promoted from the level of pagan to a status equ equivalent to that of a demon. Congratulations. 
See, either way, apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ, you're still in your sins. You're still separated from the living God. In the New Testament, the verb believe is translated from the verb form of the Greek word for faith. And when we apply that word to believing in God, it means more than I I acknowledge that there is a God. And it means far more than I accept and affirm what the Bible says about God. Biblical faith goes well beyond that. To say, I believe in God, means literally, I am believing into God. That's that's the thrust of the verb that's used in the New Testament. I am believing into God. I'm into him. Like we say about a a girl or a a guy that we're dating. I'm so into them. I'm moving in that direction. Which is to say, beyond merely believing truths about God, then I'm living in a dynamic, trusting relationship of love and obedience to God. I'm professing my conviction that God has invited me into this relationship through Jesus Christ, and I'm declaring that I have accepted his invitation. And now, by faith in Jesus, I am moving into and experiencing more and more of the fullness of that relationship. The late R.C. Sproul said that biblical faith is the convergence of one's intellect, one's will, and one's affections. That is to say that the kind of faith that pleases God involves the whole person. It has an intellectual dimension, It has a volitional dimension, and it has an emotional or affective dimension. It's neither a blind leap, nor mere compliant passivity, nor is it sheer sentimentality. See, you could know, you could even affirm, every biblical truth that is possible to know on an intellectual level only. But mere knowing may never move you to active faith. You could could remain a, a theological pinhead, right? Full of knowledge. Paul said that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Believing into Jesus on on the other hand, requires the whole of your being. When the first century disciples declared, I believe in Jesus as Lord, those were explosive words. They were explosive because they were a defiance of the Roman empires where Caesar only was Lord. They're explosive because they're the foundation of the Christian faith. They're explosive because they open the door to eternal life. They're also explosive because speaking those words publicly and without shame changed everything about their lives, everything about their relationships, everything about their personal economy and their future from that point on. 
Later on, when the third century church recited the words of the Apostles' Creed, it was simultaneously their greatest act of rebellion and an expression of allegiance. They were saying this, we don't believe the narrative. We don't believe the story that our culture is telling us. They were rejecting the popular narratives of the day and embracing the God of the Bible and the narrative of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's time for us as the church today to do the same, to pledge our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to Washington, D.C., or even Washington State, or to the United Nations, or any other entity. It's time for the church in America today to pledge our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and to pursue him with everything we have. Paul wrote to the Christ followers in Rome, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See, belief requires the whole of who you are. I'm excited for the journey that lies ahead of us. I hope that you won't miss a single one of these messages. I hope that you might invite some people to join you. I hope that if you haven't taken the time to get signed up for one of our small groups for this series, that you'll do that today. And again, we'll help you get connected. Let's pray together. Lord, as we stand on the threshold of this great journey that we will take together through the major truths that you have revealed to us in in your word, Uh, Lord, uh, may we be attentive, may we be present. Uh, Will you, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts that we would see things we haven't seen before, open our ears, that we would hear things that, that perhaps we haven't heard before? And then, Lord, would you, would you open the doors of our wills, our volition, our, our choosing uh, to choose you, uh, to choose uh, to submit ourselves to your word, to choose to pursue Jesus Christ and to live lives of genuine discipleship in a world that has turned against you. Lord, may we be that church, those people that Paul said shine like stars in a dark universe. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.